This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them, grumbled the Pharisees and the scribes, the most faithful Jews of Jesus' day. So Jesus told them a story. Actually, Jesus told them three stories. We just don't have time to hear all three of them in church today. Just one of them, but I bet you remember all three, even if you didn't remember that they all kind of went together to make the same point. The first story Jesus tells in response is the story of the lost sheep and the shepherd who leaves the 99 in order to go and search for the one that is lost. And when he finds it, he gathers together his friends, his neighbors, his family to celebrate that the one which was lost has been found. The second story is the story of the lost coin. And the woman, who having nine coins and lost only one of them, sweeps the house to search for that which is lost. And in the same way, when she finds it, what does she do? She calls her neighbors and her friends and her family in order to celebrate. I can imagine the religious leaders hearing those first two stories and thinking that they knew what Jesus was trying to teach them. That Jesus' ministry among tax collectors and other notorious sinners was actually a good and holy thing. Now, those religious leaders might prefer to hobnob with the goody-goodies of their day, but the scum of society need a rabbi too, don't they? And Jesus, it seems, was teaching them that it's okay for him to throw a party for those who had been cut off from God's family, but who had finally found a way back into the fold through him and his teaching. What a nice sentiment that is. But then Jesus tells the third story and forces those scribes and Pharisees to confront their own lostness. I have a hard time imagining a contemporary parallel that conveys the level of disrespect and betrayal displayed by the prodigal son in Jesus' story. Disputes over inheritance, as they are now, sometimes arose back then, and a son, especially the younger son, might ask his father to go ahead and divide the inheritance just to be sure that when his father was dead, the younger son wouldn't get lost in the shuffle. But the thing about dividing the property ahead of time is that it was kind of like putting something in trust. When the younger son asked that the property be divided, it could be separated, but nobody was allowed to sell it and nobody was allowed to spend the money until after the father had died. So when the son in Jesus' story takes the property that's been set aside in trust and sells it, he is saying to his father and his whole family that he doesn't care at all about that parent-child relationship, which in that culture was sacrosanct. But when he takes that money and goes off into a faraway land where nobody recognizes him, and spends all that money in dissolute living, well, that's just unthinkable. Imagine if Jesus told a story about a child who stuck his parent in a run-down nursing home, 
never called, never visited, and then pocketed the Social Security checks in order to spend that money to fuel a gambling habit. That's pretty bad. But it gets worse. In the parable Jesus tells, the prodigal son, once everything went south, hired himself out to a pig farmer in order that he might eat the carob pods that were fed to the swine. Now, there are a number of ancient Jewish texts that describe how God's people, when in a state of destitute poverty, would even eat those carob pods, that fodder that belonged to animals. But keeping pigs was a violation worse than death. The Talmud states, Cursed be the man who would raise swine, and cursed be the man who would teach his son Grecian wisdom. This is more than a violation of kosher dietary rules. The prodigal son's decision to work for a swineherd was a renunciation of his religious and cultural and national identity. He lived in a world in which all people could be easily categorized into two distinct camps, those who belonged to God and those who hated God and God's people. It was just that simple back then. So when he not only betrayed his family, but betrayed his national identity, he was switching sides, working for the enemy. He might as well have been a tax collector, who had abused his people on behalf of the occupying Roman army. That's the person Jesus tells this story about. Not just an egregious sinner, the kind of person whose name we are embarrassed to mention in mixed company, but the kind of person whose entire life is an embodiment of the rejection of everything God and God's people care about. What is someone supposed to do when they're that kind of lost? Where is someone supposed to go? To whom is someone supposed to turn when they've burned every bridge behind them? When they've thumbed their nose, even at their family and God, surely the only ones on the earth who would perhaps be willing to bring them back. I know what I will do. The son said when he came to his senses, I will return home to my father, but not as one of his children, instead as a hired hand, a slave who works in the fields. Even in his lostness, that son anticipated a tiny measure of his father's mercy. He knew his father well enough to know that even if he had squandered his inheritance and his identity as his father's heir, perhaps he could be given a place among his father's servants. Considering the shame that that son had brought upon his father and his family, to even accept him as a servant would have been an act of great mercy. The book of Deuteronomy says that a stubborn and rebellious child, one who refuses to respect the authority of his parents, Well, there's only one thing to do with such a child. You should drag him out of the city and hand him over to the elders who will stone him to death. Because Israel needs to be rid of evil like that, the Bible says. So to take him on, even as a hired hand, would have been more than generous. 
And yet when that father sees his son approaching the house, he threw aside his shame and ran in a most undignified way to embrace his boy and kiss him. Bring the best robe and the finest ring and the nicest shoes, he said to his servants, and put them on my son and go and kill the fatted calf because we need to celebrate properly. This son of mine who was dead is alive again. The one who was lost has been found. It's not supposed to be that way, but that's how God's love is. And that's why Jesus tells the second part of the story. The older son had always done his father's will. He had never done one thing to bring shame or disgrace upon his family. And that older son could not accept his father's generosity and forgiveness toward his brother. You've never given me as much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, he said, genuinely hurt by the reception his brother had received. Why don't you love me like that, he seemed to ask. To make his point about welcome and forgiveness to the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus tells three stories. The parable of the lost sheep the parable of the lost coin, and now the parable of the two lost sons. Both sons are described as being out in the fields. Both are said to have been reached out to, visited by their father. Both underestimate the magnitude and nature of the father's love, and both are lost until that love finds them. When we underestimate God's love, we too are lost. Whether it's because we're doubting our own lovability or the lovability of another person, when we do that, we hide ourselves from God and God's mercy. And yet God is the one who comes out looking for us anyway. Jesus welcomed tax collectors and sinners and ate with them, not only because they needed a rabbi too, but because they are the ones for whom God is searching. It is at their table where we find the God of love and mercy. And we, whether notorious sinners or self-righteous Pharisees, we are beckoned to sit at that table too. To those who have always lived a faithful life, whose behavior has never brought shame upon their family or their faith, that kind of love is offensive and infuriating. And to those who have lived that life of deep shame, who have burned all their bridges more than once, that kind of love is impossible to imagine. Yet that is the love that comes out searching for us, looking for all who are lost. Don't be surprised by the company that Jesus keeps. And don't be surprised that you belong at that table too.